Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Magnifique, magnifique. Well, 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 John, uh, do you like, do you like the city of Sheffield? You know, I do. I do. Um, Sheffield, UK. But I've, I've always thought, uh, that one of the best things that could happen to the world would be if the entirety of the UK was just sunk into the ocean. (laughs) Like, like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> like like a like a lost city from an HP Lovecraft story and Britain would pass into memory and become one of those things that <laughs> children are told by their parents when they're being naughty that the myth of Britain would become like a monster story that you would hear whispered around a campsite <laughs> and then you get presented it you get presented it in today's film and it's just left me deeply depressed. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a really good example of like you really when you make a wish, you need to be very specific with your intentions. Um because you could you could be granted the wish but in a a fearic and nightmarish way that was unintended. There are a few things in England that I would like to keep. Um almost all of them are in Yorkshire. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, independence for 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 Wales, for Ireland, for Scotland, for Yorkshire, mm-hmm. uh, for um, and and many of the other regions. But basically, what we're saying is, we need to sink London to the very core of the earth. My one of my favorite memes is is the. Uh it's it's the revised map of ireland meme where it's ireland a northern part of ireland and england is now ireland too with the wonderful new city of Derry uh hyphen london <laughs> yes indeed so a vision for healing for us all to meditate on during today's discussion of nuclear turmoil um it's it's it, if you would like to to feel uh, a kind of bleak sense of horror at our own cosmic ability to literally reduce life to nothing more than glowing irradiated dust then boy howdy do we have an episode for you today um oh my god john i thought you were about to do the patreon plug <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, but uh, patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, www.horrorvanguard.com is where you could go to experience similar emotions. We're talking about, we're pulling, we're pulling at the threads. We're pulling at the threads <laughs> of Britain today. We are unraveling the great web of evil that is Britain. Um, and so before we go any further, before we, we embark upon this Sisyphean task, Ash, would you mind explaining what today's film is all about. Let's start by meeting a leading authority on the subject, Dr. Atom. In the year 2023, now decades past the dawn of the atomic age, the specter of the nuclear bomb has become a fantasy in Anglo media. What would you say, dear listeners, if I posited to you that the most immediate, most dangerous threat to the survival of the human race was, was not climate collapse, 
but the thousands of nuclear weapons that could annihilate life as we know it. Climate collapse could kill billions. Global nuclear war could kill everything. Media from Western nations has only ever approached atomic devastation from the standpoint of fantasy. Whether it be through the format of gigantic atomic crickets or dehistoricized fallout, there's always an absent center, an absent context. Godzilla becomes allied with the same mil military that spawned his devastating trauma. The current historic moment blurs into, into a fantasy of the real, where ideological precepts govern undetected impulses. Threads depicts unspeakable horrors. Citizens of the UK starving in their homes, the NHS turning away the sick and wounded, political prisoners dying in jail for the crime of fighting to live. These things aren't fantasy. These have happened and are happening in the United Kingdom. Don't drink tap water. It may be contaminated. We don't need the privileged position of hindsight to see the gossamer veil that ideology throws over Threads. In 1984, the year Threads was released, Bobby Sands died during his historic hunger strike in support of Irish independence. In a time where the troubles were ongoing, UK citizens being rounded up and jailed for dissent was not fantasy. We turn today to see a UK in turmoil. Hunger and food poverty are at historic highs in this island kingdom. Its ruling monarchy looks down with disinterested eyes as their subjects go hungry. The, the COVID pandemic also revealed the frailty of the NHS. The pandemic nearly instantly brought the UK's healthcare system to its knees, and it still hasn't been given the resources it needs to stand back up. Threads also engages with a deeper, more damning fantasy. The idea that the UK was neutral during the Cold War. England spent the Cold War openly, militarily on the side of the United States. It was never a helpless bystander in international politics. The absence of agency is feigned to engender an adolescent innocence. Threads makes little direct reference to the UK's colonization of Ireland, North America, or indeed the world at large. The scale of uh, global politics is at once damningly immediate and isolated at a distance. The atomic sun can never set on the British Empire. The consequences of our current political moment are the aftermath of a shared history. We cannot play pretend that we awoke today as babes, fragile and without sin. Another bomb may fall. Today, dear listener, for the love of God, today, March 9th in the year of 2023, the UK and the, UK and the US are spending billions to upgrade their nuclear capacity, while Russia and other nations race to expand and develop their own ability to reset life on Earth to the damn Cambrian period. Climate catastrophe is and will be devastating, but at least life larger than a shellfish will still be able to see the dawn. I talk about nuclear war often in my praises because it's something that scares me. This praise might be the last thing you hear. This conversation with John might be the last one I share. All because some errant politician postured a little too hard. Hope for a nuclear weapon-free future is lost, but all lost hopes can be found again. We find lost hopes in the eyes of the people we love. That feeling you get when you gaze into the eyes of your lover, your child, your closest friends, that is the only force that can com complete the project of global nuclear disarmament. For the first time in, known, in the known history of the universe, a life form has the capability to eradicate all existence on its planet. This also means that for the first time in the history of the known universe, a life form has the power to save its planet from destruction. 
even if we must save it from ourselves. Together, and only together, we can stop this final dawn from rising. Take an hour from your day to stroll through the devastation of atomic fantasy with us as we discuss Threads. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. Oof. Yes. Yes, indeed. Let's um, get brutal. Let, let, let's get brutal. Let us get brutal. Shall we begin, as we always must, in the brutalist architecture <laughs> of the formalism zone? The formalism zone. Ah, yes, yes. Let's let's start in the uh, uh, fallout shelters and bunkers scattered throughout towns across uh, many countries in the world now, thanks to uh, the wonderful creativity of human military ingenuity. Uh, where would you like to begin? Um, well, you know, you know, uh, now that now that I'm sifting through my my fallout shelter, I've got a fistful of bottle caps. I'm playing some fun retro music. I just uh, I just shot a giant lizard with a ray gun. So we should probably talk about Mark Fisher and pop modernism. <laughs> yes. OK, so like I, I included this because Fisher has this uh, this phrase of popular modernism, which is like there's this incredible there's this incredible kind of moment in British cultural production between the late, the very late sixties, early seventies, to just about this time of the mid to late eighties, where for the public and for for public broadcasters, uh, working class, explicitly political writers and and directors were making mass media culture that was designed to be like complex and mm-hmm. challenging and kind of consciousness raising. Um, there's there's some really great examples of like British folk horror that emerge in this period. Mark Fisher famously writes about sapphire and steel, um, which is in uh, Ghosts of My Life, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I I would 100 percent include I would include Threads as an example of a kind of popular modernism. Oh, uh, from oh, the, yeah, from yeah. the director of the Bodyguard as well, by the way. <laughs> I, I I completely agree, and I think that um, the realism here is super important because, and I guess this might be getting a little ahead of myself in our notes, but the depictions of the atomic bomb in in Anglo and Western media are are deeply mitigated by by fantasy driven with with certain colonialist ideologies. Right, like it's always uh, kind of like a knockoff of Godzilla, some kind of Godzilla spoof, right? Giant lizards, giant monsters, giant creatures of all types and sizes, and then you know, like they might level a city vaguely, but there's really no interesting discussion of what Fallout actually means, even even to the popular Fallout franchise, right? Like it makes the post-apocalypse of a global thermonuclear war seem quirky and fun uh yeah threads is not fun you're in if you if you enjoy a really bad bleak depressing time come on down (laughs) (laughs) come on down to sheffield to sheffield town center where the department store is now an irradiated wasteland where you might get shot for looting um but but again, it's this. It, what's weird is that like, uh, if you look at like the cultural production of mainstream British television now, there's a bit of me that was watching this and going, 
this this would be unthinkable to make now. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's too explicitly political. It's too it's it's in a way it's quite formally weird and quite experimental. Oh, deeply. It's, um, and it's it's committed to something which is like it's committed to a certain perspective which even that which then and perhaps even less now is not often shown on british television which is a distinctly working class position oh 100 percent. no i i completely agree with that um there's, there's a scene in particular that that i think t- ties that in with this idea of like like pop modernism and mark fisher and all that um it, it's a very brief moment that flashes on screen just for a second in the immediate aftermath of of a nuclear strike uh, during is, this film is set during the Cold War, if you haven't seen it, um, and and England is kind of depicted as being caught in between a nuclear exchange between the United States and the USSR. Um, and there's a brief scene after Sheffield has been bombed, where we see a an ET doll, ET the extraterrestrial, uh, melting and and in flames, and I, I think that's a very clever thing to, to put in a movie because this movie, as much as it's, you know, deeply interested in exploring the working class and the political context of the consequences of the cold war, it's also calling out Hollywood, right? It's, it's calling out how Hollywood handles, um, the, the kind of horrific global context that we're in, because what, what we get is movies like ET movies that are, cute and silly and fun and they've got some you know topics that they grapple with but like threads isn't afraid to like cross lines and go there in ways that are like very challenging yeah and like one of the one of the reasons that i don't know if something like this would be even made nowadays is because i don't know if there'd be this if the kind of person who wrote this would would be able to no certainly not so, uh, for people who don't know, this was this was directed by the same person who directed The Bodyguard, starring Whitney Houston. Um, but it was written uh, by a, a British writer called Barry Hines. Mm-hmm. Um, Barry Hines was a former PE teacher who used to write, who used to do creative writing uh, after he'd finished his day's work teaching. Uh, he got into writing radio plays for the BBC uh, and then along it like he falls into this group of writers who are kind of working class artists and creators usually from outside of london who because of a certain kind of cultural infrastructure that existed at the time were able to actually get their work seen by people uh so most famously is his, uh, most famous is probably his debut novel uh called uh cass which was turned into a film directed by the legend that's ken loach um uh, and he was he was one of these one of the people who kind of like was writing explicitly from a working class northern background mm-hmm. um and yeah it's it's incredible to think that if not for a certain set of cultural uh structures which have eroded to to almost being completely absent now this kind of work would never have found would never have been produced oh that is that is so so shockingly true like the landscape of what can get permitted and and again like this just goes back to like chomsky's manufacturing consent right like it's this the system has only gotten better at becoming self-censoring right if you wind up in the point where you are directing major triple a studio releases the only people that are going to be able to make it that high are people that are naturally self-censoring in ways that are beneficial for these studio apparatuses um, like a, a movie, I do not see a movie like this getting made today by 
anything like this 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 would get made as like a no budget indie art film that would be seen by no one but like me and other weirdos who look out for those movies yeah it it wouldn't be it wouldn't be on the bbc on like no, the, on the God, national no. broadcaster no like, the, the, literally the, impossible no. the the bbc could has no the, the bbc is like a i don't know i don't even know how to describe the bbc in a way that wouldn't just make me angry <laughs> But like uh, you know, uh, Mark Fisher talks about this a lot, uh, and e- even in a way, um, uh, oh, what's it called? I'm going to need to look up. I'm going to need to look up who wrote it. Take your uh, time. Uh, even even in a way, uh, Cynthia Cruz's book, The Melancholia of Class, talks oh, yeah. about this, right? Which it is that it used to be that the kind of cultural institutions of where you grew up were there to help you if you wanted to be involved in them, right? Uh, they were there to kind of like teach you things or they were there to like give you opportunities to write or to direct or to make art or to make music that like increasingly have just been kind of privatized away um, and made completely inaccessible. And so, you know, as someone who I, you know, I grew up what uh, 20, 30 minutes away from Sheffield, it's actually, it, it's genuinely kind of a weird thing to watch this and think like this was made by and made for the people it's presenting on screen it was made by them and it was made for them and i think that's a kind of like it's one of the reasons why i think the film resonates so so powerfully still but i think that's really important like like because because again like as you highlighted the the man who wrote this was a pe teacher by day writer by night like the, the we're we're just in a completely different economic position where being able to do something like that being able to like pursue your passion when your one job that sustains your life ends you know like that that is already a grim situation to be in right one should be able to just pursue their passions without the strings of employment but like to to have that is like i don't know anybody who just has one job anymore you know yeah. like like let alone the the free time and even if even if i i do know plenty of people who are pursuing their passions and what little time they have but there, there's just no roadmap to something like this anymore, and then that all that does is serve to lock out the working class from the just the social machinery of the creation of this kind of art. Absolutely, absolutely, and it like it used to be that this was kind of like, you know, uh, it depends upon multiple things, right? Jobs that pay you enough that you only need to work one, mm-hmm. um, a uh, a system of kind of like. Um, uh, a system of of uh, art production that actually enables people who are uh, working class, people who are poor, to spend time writing. Right. So one of the things that uh, happened to Barry Hines is that he won a he got a kind of like a, a grant to go and um, to go abroad and finish a book. And it's like that kind of stuff is like it's so much more precarious. It's so much more contingent now, and it's become so much the 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 British cultural production generally has become so much more insular, and it becomes next to impossible for someone who is uh, new and doesn't have those same kind of connections to to even come close to breaking into it now. Oh, oh, one, you, this is this is and like this is so completely true. And like as as we mentioned just a moment ago, like even if you do break through. Like you're you're not you're not getting released on the Beeb. They're not going to put you on Disney Plus streaming. Threads isn't making it to Netflix. Maybe this no, would get ab- picked absolutely. up by Amazon Prime because a bunch of weird junk gets dumped there. But it would be with the rest yeah. of the weird junk that gets dumped there. 
Like there's a difference between my my movie got released on Amazon Prime next to like Replicator and DB Cooper versus Sasquatch. (laughs) And the BBC <laughs> is screening my film. The, those two things have different cultural impacts. No, 100%. And this was enormously uh, successful and enormously, uh, and still is enormously critically well regarded and for really good reason. Um, do you want to talk about its documentary format, which I think yes. is really interesting? Yeah, this is because this technically falls into the category of mockumentary, which I think is. This is incredibly interesting. This is another horror fan card does a documentary movie that's not really a documentary movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I found that to be, this was one of the things that I, while I was watching it, because um, it, it kind of weaves a, a more traditional film, a traditional narrative in with a political documentary, right? We have we have a very traditional film about a, a young couple who uh, have ju- just found out that they're pregnant and they're figuring out what to do with their lives in England in 1984 in Sheffield, um, being woven in with this kind of like very interesting documentary about the nuclear aftermath uh, of, of a strike near Sheffield. So what do you, what do you make of that like connection between these two things? Um. I think it's really interesting, and I think it raises the question of who is this a horror f- film for, mm-hmm. and why. So it's like the this is this is unabashedly, I think, a a deeply didactic film, right? It is trying to impart something to its audience, um, and this is a, this is a horror film. But the people who are in the horror film are us, yeah. Right to, to to view this is to be drawn into this kind of like participatory anthropology where you become subject to what you're being shown, right? Because uh, you talked in the pricey about fantasy, but like this film very much refuses the kind of the cinematic language that allows mm-hmm. a sort of like self distancing from the screen. Yes, yeah. right. Um, the thing that I found really interesting is it uses a lot of montage and it uses a lot of photography. Mm-hmm. Right, it uses a lot of like static shots of photographs, which aim to give a kind of sense of. I'm thinking here of like uh, Susan Sontag's writing on photography, where yep. it's about it's about the capture, the capturing of a kind of truth almost. You know, it feels more real than just having something move past you. You know, the cinema is a kind of fantasy projector, right? So the, the these kind of interstitial moments where you get presented just like photograph images. Uh, suddenly it the it kind of ups its use of realism just a little bit oh deeply um, yeah like and it is oh go on so yeah i think it's it's a horror film but it's a horror film for us right which is you know you're not watching people in a horror film you're watching this ergo you are in a geopolitical horror movie and, and especially like it in, in the context right this this is before the popularity of digital photography like like a photograph is captured on on scene and it is a a direct emanation of of that moment in that place right like like f- photographs are an analogy of the real right they're they're a piece of that moment that you can hold in your hand again and and by by putting those stills in there it is directly invoking the history of war and disaster photography right that that is that is a deeply fraught and complicated journalistic subject what you take pictures of, how you take pictures of. We see so many dead bodies in this, so many melting corpses, and they're not dressed up to deliver Hollywood effect. 
right? They're very much in situ and woven into their scenery, and they are how you see a dead body out in the world, just just caked into the reality that it's that you find the corpse in. And you're absolutely right. That adds closeness for us, the viewer, in this. Yeah. Because it has this, it has that air. So really, there's kind of two strains of documentary that, like, or rather, two modes of realism happening in this. So you have the documentary about the geopolitics, mm-hmm. and you also you also have a very explicit, and I would say quite socialist realism yeah. happening, which is ba- which is Barry Hines' kind of like interest in domesticity in the north of England. Particularly, right, pretty much everything that he wrote was about uh, a kind of like the the Oh, South Yorkshire. Pretty much everything was about Yorkshire in Barry Hines' writing. Wise choice. Um, so there's this, there's this kind of like in in British drama in the nineties. It was called Kitchen Sink, the Kitchen Sink writers. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about uh, kind of the mundanity of working class life. And there's a what what we could term a kind of like uh, Yorkshire socialist realism happening here. I love that. So there's there's two there are two modalities of realism, uh, two 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 different languages, but are both both coded in this way of like they're trying to show you a kind of truth. And I think it's important to I, I don't think this film works if you do one without the other. If you if you no, absolutely yeah. if you because you can excise both elements from each other and have two totally functional freestanding short films. One, a a hypothetical mockumentary about the effects of a nuclear strike on the Sheffield area in the 80s, and the other, a a kind of personal tale of a woman's struggle through said uh, nuclear attack. But separately, I I think the fantasy subsumes the context of the documentary. Like, I, I think only together do you get that kind of grim, real closeness by by witnessing what people are actually going through and then at the same time having like the documentarian's clinical hand guiding you through the experience. Yeah, precisely, precisely. And I think maybe this is a good way of getting into the kind of history of um, cultural production and cultural production around the Cold War in the Cold War. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a moment... There's a moment that I know you you want to talk about, which is like where they are, where they're talking about. Actually, there's several moments. I think there's the, so the many. one that, that there is. It's full of moments. There's a there's a moment right towards the end of the film where the police forcibly repossess a man's house, mm-hmm. uh, and he's clearly like he's quite he's quite elderly, and it's sort of like you can't do that. You know that's that's not right. And the police says, we're not here to debate the rights and wrongs of it. And I'm sort of like, the thing that's interesting about something that's made in the 80s is that there's this generation, uh, the, an older generation at that time who lived through the social, what was called the social compact mm-hmm. in Britain post, post, post-World post War Two, which did things like uh, b- building a nationalized health service, uh, building huge amounts of uh, social housing, uh, and what threads is about is about is in, is is in some ways about the last the last vestiges of those threads being literally blown into atomic particles that i i think that is such 
uh, the the ad the literal atomizing that that goes on through this movie, both in, in the nuclear strike and in the fabric of the working class of Sheffield in the eighties. It's just it is it is I think one of the the most stark things about this like entire documentary that oh my god there's so much there's so much to talk about in terms of Britain and the Cold War so one of the things that I, I did want to highlight um, about this is that watching this now and this is something that would be interesting to get your take on because watching this now in 2023 right we are. 40 years on from the mo- the moment this movie was made, right? We are a good time away. Um, it, it seems to present England as being neutral in the events of the Cold War, despite showing jets launching to the skies and all of that. You hear a lot of like, oh, America's doing this and, and Russia's doing that. And, and you get the feeling that England is caught in between the struggle of these two titans. But when you when you go back and you look at the history, England's less caught in between the struggle of two titans and more... 1000% on the side of one of them. <laughs> yeah, but he, but this is this is the thing. Uh there is in the in the British ruling class there's always been this deep spirit of cowardice. Oh yeah. where it like events are presented at a kind of second hand mm-hmm. as if there is no sort of, and actually I think this ties in really closely to this film's discussion of of how political power operates because post disaster Power is almost quite literally faceless mm-hmm. in Britain, right? Who Who is it that makes the decisions? They're not there. They're, they are the absent center of British politics. Mm-hmm. So you're completely right, right? Uh, it's, it's completely the case that Britain was deeply committed to the ideological project of, of anti-communism throughout the Cold War uh, through to, you know, to, to getting involved in any kind of Soviet activity possible, uh, as well as upholding its own kind of colonial interests around the world. But there's always, there's still this kind of like, to this day in British politics, there's this kind of like disavowal of its own uh, implication, yeah. its own involvement. Uh, to, to, to see the example of that, right, there is currently the British Prime Minister is talking about... Um, uh, essentially, provide making Britain into one of the best places to to be a people smuggler because the latest idea is that if you've arrived in Britain illegally, you're no longer able to claim help under the modern slavery protection legislation that exists in this country. Um, but it's done. It's done at this secondhand remove, right? It's not that there's any. It's not that there's any active agency. Mm-hmm. It's merely that we're removing something, right? So there is. There is con- consistently. I think you're completely right. The film. The film doesn't necessarily dig into this question all that well, but it's left quite implicit in its politics. But mm-hmm. there is this. There is this kind of split. The agency is always invisible, yeah. right? Agency is always in because that means it can be denied. It, that is exactly, it, and I mean, one, um, England of all places on this planet, walking back historic anti-slavery legislation is a little, um, and, and if if every, every government, every every boss, every person in power loves to have plausible deniability for the consequences of their decision making. Um, but it's it's a ver- it's a very British thing. This idea yep. of like, oh, ter- terrible things happened, but that's just the natural order. But, but I was going to say, like, if if there is anyone who in particular loves this, especially in in the post war context, it is it is England and these politics of austerity. 
everything is yeah, this greater consequence and there's really there there is no hand on the wheel there's no one to blame for what's going on you just have to yeah oh groceries cost 40p now uh, oh well gotta tough that out i mean this is this is something that you know there there are many really good and valid criticisms of, of the work of somebody like mark fisher but like the great value of capitalist realism is as a diagnosis of what i think is maybe a very specifically british articulation of capitalist realism oh go on right? go on it, it, oh, so off. like he he wrote it so he wrote it out out of this sense of kind of frustration i remember watching a talk where he's like young people should be angrier not because of their current conditions but because of how much has been taken away from you mm-hmm. And what you've been given in to replace that is worse. It's worse or it's non-existent. And you're told that's just the way that things are. And it's like that that pressing, that grinding, depressive notion of this is just the way things are. It it feels it feels very England politics. I mean, obviously, capitalist realism was a kind of it was a huge success because it spoke to like a, a kind of generalized it sense works of politics but i think it works everywhere but i think like fisher's cultural references and his like interest in like specifically british media from the 70s and 80s it's like watching watching threads is is like watching capitalist realism sort of materialize in front of your very eyes oh 100 and like i think it's really important that we spend a lot of time here in the formalism zone talking about the the context of the United Kingdom during the Cold War and the aftermath of World War II through Margaret Thatcher leading up to today, including Mark Fisher's writing. Um, as I was watching this, I because I, because I was like, okay, like you know, are we, we have an international podcast which features a global perspective on events. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, like, okay, well, what's the American equivalent of threads? You know, and like, like what what would be what what would be america's like like okay like the american working class ideological appraisal of the events of th- it's red dawn red dawn is <laughs> yes is, yeah, yeah. is kind of i mean like sort of right because you know red dawn it, it doesn't have the left leaning attitude right like if you if you made a, a right leaning threads you would in america you would get red dawn it's kind of like the working class mirror to threads i should say um, but it's like it is it is deeply revealing of the kind of like national mythologies and ideologies that operate. And, and I think it it's it's important to like look at this in context with Red Dawn in a weird way, because that throws both America and England into a very stark relief. Yeah, that's such a that's such a great comparison. That's such a great comparison. Wolverines! <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I put it, like Britain gets destroyed uh, by the world that it made through its own colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there is something I want to talk about though when it comes to the idea of the Cold War, and, and this is um, Michael Parenti's point about it yes. being an arms race. Because mm-hmm. because Parenti Parenti makes a pretty it's a pretty spicy argument that it's like it's not a race. It's not. It was never a race because a race implies equality to people to to almost equal that are trying to kind of reach the same goal it was it was an arms catch-up yep that's what it was and i'm like does that does that check and it's so interesting that this plays out 
Like the whole crux of this, the whole crux of this is an American invasion of Ira- of Iran's oil fields, mm-hmm. which I'm like, but, you know, Barry Hines predicting the future from <laughs> from from the 80s was predicting the Gulf War. Um, Threads <laughs> yeah, predicted like, YouTube video gone viral. But what? But what do you think of that? What do you? How do you think that? Well, we because this is a kind of this is. It's written by by someone who's very left wing. It's oh, a yeah, left wing yeah. analysis of of the Cold War, and I think there are some pretty glaring flaws in in the film itself. But like, what do you think about this idea of like the U.S. Soviet clash in Iran being the catalyst for destroying this ordinary couple's life? I, so I think this is really interesting, and I'm happy that we've invoked both Chomsky and Parenti in today's episode. Um, I'm sure the discourse will be excellent. Yeah, just just. Just to annoy everybody. Got to cover our bases here. <laughs> Got to cover our bases. We, we're we're getting all our problematic faves. You know what, Zizek? Um, and and I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take us to third base with Zizek on this one. Um, but because like like you know we we get into the RoboCop problem where RoboCop wasn't predicting a horrible future of militarized police technology. It was commenting on the moment the movie was made in, and it's the, yeah. the, the commentary no longer works because we're living in and we're living in the hypothetical now. Um, and hopefully we'll never live in the hypothetical that is Threads, um, because it's heavily implied in the movie that this is the state of things throughout the entire planet and not just in Sheffield. Um, but like looking at like, you know, like the greater context of things and like what's going on, like, like arms race implied like I've always been fascinated by the phrase arms race, right? Because it's clearly deeply ideological, right? It's it's implying that we constantly have to catch up with each other, and it's 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 a mutual activity that we've engaged in, where we're both pushing each other, which is in in some respects an accurate appraisal. But races have a goal; there's a destination. There, there's a place where the race ends, and the winner gets decided. No one it, uh, to, yeah. to quote uh, to quote War Games: no, the correct move is not to play. There is no winner of this race. The only the only thing that can win this race is whatever whatever bacteria and fungi evolve the abilities to feed on nuclear rot. Like I, I wasn't global nuclear war resets the evolution of this planet to before the point where things got out of the ocean. Like it is horrific on a scale that like literally cannot be depicted or imagined. And like. I think like evoking Parenti here is is appropriate because there's no way to talk about what this film is trying to go through without invoking the extremes of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we should probably talk a little bit then about about the <laughs> politics within this film. Yeah. So I think I think this is a really interesting. Uh, Obviously, discursively, there's loads to talk about, but like, I think we should talk a little bit about one of the things that I kind of like about this film is that it it allows the there is a sort of there's this inter class uh, political tension and contradictions that run all the way through it. So like, you you see like CND campaign for nuclear disarmament marches mm-hmm. happening before the bombs fall. You see like trade unions calling for a general strike, but you also see like. Uh, very stereotypically like UKIPI, uh, yeah. uh, like colo- colonial defense. You know, people who are calling for peace are called like s- commie sympathizers. Mm-hmm. 
so it's like what do you what do you think about the way this film deals with sort of its class politics in the run-up to conflict I, I think this is this is really interesting and to, to again make analogy to red dawn i mean red dawn is doing very similar things like you see like people who had higher class positions in red dawn kind of like folding in with the invading army being less at, at struggling and less at risk and it's the people at at the kind of like class periphery who are like getting locked up and being forced to take up arms against an invading force and all of that stuff and like a pro- problematic analogy to a problematic movie um but again i think it fleshes out the point in in this film right there's a striation intra the class itself and that's it's alive and well in the tone of this movie too right like notable absences in the discourse of this movie include uh the uk's involvement in libya the existence of margaret thatcher the existence of the troubles and what was going on in ireland and northern ireland let alone the history of that and the genocide that was done there like this this movie's leaving a lot out of the conversation and sure i mean like that's kind of a half critique because what what text could cover everything um but i think it's like you know like like that that kind of class position where like okay like the the connection between these these larger global scale political events and the political realities covered by the TUC struggles and events at home UKIP like uh, there are different striations and valences of kind of like class consciousness and awareness and the movie is kind of like not committing to one side of things or one view of things but creating an open field where you can watch them all struggle in vain against the coming nuclear collapse yeah because really like like that's that's the great leveler right it it that decides all the discourse mm-hmm. right where if if every if if everything falls into collapse uh all of the discourse gets to is rendered kind of superfluous yeah and i think I, there, there, there's a lot that I like about how Barry Hines writes about and presents the people that he that he's he's writing about. I think it's I think it's done incredibly well. Um, it's never it's never pandering. It's never you know. Uh, it's never kind of like patronizing in how it's presented. I think um, the the point that I, I think is really good is like there's a real underscoring of like how fragile and contingent working class pol- political agency is right because there's the bit where he's in the pub and he's talking to his friend he's <laughs> mm-hmm. like this is this is all getting a bit serious right this is starting to look a little bit frightening and his friend goes well what are you gonna do yeah like there's nothing you can do you know you may as well go out with a bang uh and it's like, yeah, there, there's nothing you can do. There, there is nothing you can do. Even if you have principles, you know, even if you're in a trade union, even if yep. you're part of a union movement, the cops are going to drag you away. Even if you're it's like the leader of the TUC. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really good film at kind of underscoring like the fragility and contingency of like any sort of political power. Oh, absolutely. And I think that there's another very related moment in the movie that was like super grim to me. There was um so our our two protagonists are uh I think they're 18 or 19. Uh they're super young, right? Like fresh out of British high school. Um and it's it's a it's a couple. It's a, it's a young man and a young woman. The woman is uh unexpectedly pregnant and they decide to get married. 
Um, and we see the young man at home with his mother and father. And he's like, oh, we, well, you know, she's pregnant. We've decided to get married. We, I was going to propose anyway. So we're just kind of speeding up the timetable here. And then, like, you know, the parents are uncertain because their kid's making an abrupt decision. But one of the things that dad said is 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 he says that this is, you know, like like what a time to be raising a child, you know, like with all these political tensions and political strifes and the economy the way it is. And I'm like (laughs) saying that four decades ago and like we're saying that today and things are worse to a degree that would have been unimaginable. There's a, there's another moment where an old lady is purchasing her groceries and, and her groceries cost 40 pence, which is less than one American dollar. And, and she, she's like 40 P it's outrageous prices. Uh, you're, you're, you're price gouging. You're inflating things because of the conflict. You, you know, and I'm, and I'm just like, Oh my God, I would, I would like fucking kill for groceries that were that affordable. <laughs> Yeah, right. This idea of like, oh, you're trying to have a kid in a recession. It's mm-hmm. like 40 years ago yeah. and nothing has changed. Four decades later. <laughs> um, as we wrap up the formalism zone, should we very quickly talk about the construction of nuclear war on screen? I, I think this is maybe one of the most important formalism points that we can make about this movie because... And again, like a lot of nuclear bombs have been dropped on this planet, um, but only uh, and I mean, like this is kind of true, right? Because people in the Bikini Atoll have been hurt by by and killed by nuclear attacks, right? Like there are plenty of of islanders, you know, throughout the world that have been hurt by nuclear radiation directly from the fallout of these bombs. But only two cities have been directly struck by a nuclear weapon, and that's Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. Um, and they were struck by nuclear weapons towards the end of the war when that military power was already defeated, or at least on its last leg. What we see in the consequence, it's one thing when Japanese cinema goes on to invent Godzilla as a way to explore the trauma and pain and anger of of being the only place on Earth directly hit with a nuclear weapon. Um, it's another thing entirely when an American cinema company goes on to make a Godzilla movie where Godzilla basically swims up next to a Navy ship salutes and then goes to save America from an atomic monster. Um, yeah. Yeah. Completely, completely different contexts and different things. And I think this is really one of the rare examples of a Adam age horror movie that is made in one of these nuclear Anglo Western powers that kind of grapples with the horrific reality of what it actually means to have and use nuclear weapons. Uh, honestly, I hate that I'm going to do this. I hate that I'm going to do oh, this. Oh God. But this just reminded me of an infamous British television moment featuring Jeremy Corbyn. Oh no. <laughs> uh, so oh, back in, back in 2019, I think, yeah, it was, was it 2019 or was it the first one? Either 2017 or 2019. Corbyn's on this televised debate with the public yep. where a lot of... And he's been a kind of staunch uh, kind of... Uh, uh, this this whole idea of like anti, anti-intervention or escalation, mm-hmm. very opposed to, to nuclear war for a very long time. Uh, and it's sort of like loads of people are asking him would he launch a pre- would you do it jeremy would you launch a preemptive nuclear strike if iran or north korea suddenly got a missile would you do it why wouldn't you do it why wouldn't you murder millions of people oh, i remember and like, this he just keeps 
and they're like there's this one woman who has to chime in and go i don't know why everybody is so keen on on like mass murder on a global scale but it's like this idea that like because corbyn's point is always very simple that if you ever get to the point where nuclear weapons have launched there's been catastrophic failures geopolitically far earlier and the Mm -hmm. much more sensible thing is to prevent that ever happening like it should be literally unthinkable to use them right that that should be a very basic and i think reasonable response but it was turned into this kind of like a cudgel with which to attack him in the in the media as like being you know as being soft on terrorism and Mm -hmm. you know he was going to he was going to let all british people die in a nuclear war that 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 is just like i i remember i remember this moment so clearly like the bizarre hypothetical he was thrown into and like there was no winning answer because if he would have said yes i'd do it the the conservative and liberal media in the uk would have been like bloodthirsty jeremy corbyn is killing your children again yeah yeah bloodthirsty corbyn would like to you know bathe in the blood of children (laughs) and that's just it and i think that we we get a lot of that in the formalism of this movie too. A lot of, a lot of this the screen time of this movie we spend <laughs> trapped in an underground bunker with the emergency powers government of of I don't know if it's meant to be Sheffield City or Yorkshire regionally, um, but it's it's like the emergency powers government of the region is literally locked out of the rest of the world. They were in the basement of a building. The building collapsed. They're imprisoned, but they can like radio out. So they're like like weeks after the assault, they have no power. They're drinking like the the rainwater that trickles down through the grime and cement. And they're they're still like on the phone and they're like, well, we can't commit more constables to that region. And it's the most like in in a very meaningful sense, all of British politics is locked in a basement away from the rest of England and is radioing out communications. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other, as as we move into our discourse zone, uh, after spending uh, wow, oh, about oh, an hour. A while, <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing that really exemplifies um, a particular kind of British authoritarianism in this film is when they run out of police officers to control looters, and so they turn to traffic wardens and then start giving them guns. <laughs> And it's like if you, when when full-throated British fascism arrives, it will arrive at the you know with the traffic warden pointing a gun at you because you parked, you stopped your car outside a rich person's house, and they were forced to look at you. Right, that's that's a very particularly British mm-hmm. capitalist realist kind of authoritarian politics. Oh, absolutely. Let, let's and I think like you know like because there, there are so many contrasts in our in our two wonderful wonderful nations and systems of government, um, both both good and and bad and many things to to put into relief. But like I did I did enjoy the notion that like as part of the emergency powers slip into like like oh how could we represent the total collapse of our nation? We're we're gonna arm the police. We're gonna give them guns. That that'll show the audience that things have really gotten bad. I I I, yeah, I, I, I felt for no the American, irony watching like, that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh geez. <laughs> 
but I do I do think that's that, that's important too because like that, that that is literally the police state you know like that that that's how how it rolls literally on on APCs or whatever like it's just different rates of acceleration in different countries at, at on on different vectors and at different moments and this is this is one of them that's really grim I mean really thinking about it I sort of realized that this film is a prequel to Children of Men <laughs> Still, my one of my favorite film Twitter uh, uh, tweets of all time is is somebody somebody posted something like, "I'm starting to feel that it was just England and in, in Children of Men, and the rest of the world was going on fine." <laughs> yeah, the rest of the world. Yeah, it's like, do you do you want to know why Britain is so quote unquote normal? Watch watch Threads and then watch Children of Men yeah. back to back, and you will and you will understand this country. And then know and then know that while Threads is happening. There, 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 there is a delegate on a, on a, on an aid ship from France that's full of medical weapon or medical equipment, medical weapons. I am an American. Medical equipment and food, <laughs> and, and they're like, can can we disperse aid? And the British government is like, no, you cannot enter. <laughs> yeah, uh, like an, an armed traffic warden turns them back <laughs> at the ports. <laughs> Like, but this is the whole point, right? Where we're talking about like the increasing authoritarian, pe- like the petty social authoritarianism of British authority figures, like rounding up looters and, and ever expanding uh, British uh, carceral state. All of that's happening. All of that's all of the, like the, we are in the horror movie that is contemporary Britain, and Threads showed us what it was going to be like from the very beginning. Oh, this the this this film this film. Um, let's let's like so I want to talk about food in the UK for a second, and not maybe not in the way that uh, I, I'm only assuming that a significant portion of our audience has had their minds poisoned by social media and the internet, just like we have, um, and not not in the kind of memeified way. Because like I, I I'm gonna come out and say it. You give me you give me a chip, buddy, right? Damn good. That is a genius level sandwich. That is perfect construction. Right there, French fries in between two buns, a little sneaky curry sauce in there. Mmm, chef's kiss. But we're not we're not here to debate how good mushy peas are because the answer is very good. Uh, we're we're here to talk about food politics. Sn- snuck in some <laughs> snuck in some British culinary hot takes there. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. But descri- describing a chip buddy as containing French fries is essentially an anti-British hate crime. <laughs> Uh, like, but please, please know that that was an intentional phrasing. <laughs> like me and every other British person, all three of them who listen to this show, are currently wincing in pain. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, oh no, no, that I did that one on purpose. I love, I love to get fish with French fries. It is such a good meal. <laughs> All right, I'm, I do that again. I'm le- I do that again. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm leaving the <laughs> recording. Oh, yeah, we, we, we're uh, welcome to our new podcast, the Fish and Chips Vanguard. <laughs> we'll be talking about organizing your local chippy. God, now I, oh my god, I now I just want mushy pizza idea. chips. Damn it, and some curry sauce. I did this to me. Uh, okay, so what do you, what do you want to talk about in terms of food? So I think I, what what I think is really interesting in a lot of the context of this film is there is a lot of attention paid to food scarcity in the UK, 
Um, and, and I think that that is really important to focus and look on, especially in our current moment, right? Because we're we're in a political moment where like people alive right now, like, you know, our generation, broadly speaking, y- younger people, older people as well, like we're experiencing a level of food scarcity that like would would only feel uh, known to people who survived the Great War. You know, shops with empty shelves, barren cupboards, right? Like food stamp programs being completely taxed, uh, uh, food pantries and other public efforts being just just completely inundated with more need than they've ever faced. And I think that this movie is very open about that that reality, right? Because you don't need you don't need like a nuclear attack to to generate that level of political and like material discomfort. You just need anything that can sufficiently disrupt society. I.e. COVID. Yeah, I mean like it's the it's the hyper optimate hyper optimization mm-hmm. of supply chains. Uh the the massive globalization of supply chains, the introduction of just in time shipping um yep like this is the, this is the thing that like those problems are, co- are caused by capitalism's endless drive towards its own self-perfectibility uh and this notion that like it can become without flaw so it's like the smallest problem then creates these kind of great seismic you know the the opening narration is very it's kind of on the money uh, uh it's a little on the nose in places the film but like i think has a great amount to say about this like th- literally you pull on one thread and the whole thing, all of those systems, all of those things which seem so unshakable uh, are, you know, so fragile. And ultimately what that results in is exactly what you see in the film where, where you have these, you know, anonymous faces in, 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 you know, dusty rooms just going, yeah, all of those people are dead already. They're just, they're walking mm-hmm. around, and they're, but they're dead yeah. and they just don't know it yet. It, but I, I mean, right, that that's what happens right when you pull yeah. on the thread you you are you are completely correct there's even a line during one of the documentary segments where, where they're talking about like the the nhs and local hospitals being being just absolutely crushed under the weight of demand and the narrator says something to the effect of even even during the peak of peacetime this level of demand would have destroyed the nhs and we literally just lived through that yeah, it's like, and 40 years later. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. And, and that, that exactly speaks to your, like, what, what are these systems preparing for? They're hyper-optimized for a certain moment. They're, they're not designed to actually... Actually providing healthcare means bracing for impact. Means being ready for the unexpected, not being optimized for a certain predictable level of health. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We are, we are currently up to a section entitled Sheffield why but but yes let's let's talk about sheffield let's talk about sheffield um yeah why why sheffield (laughs) i i mean i I think this is such such an apt choice i think choosing yorkshire and and picking sheffield in specific is just so for for everyone out there from the states who hasn't been to the wonderful city of sheffield uh on on the main drag in sheffield right main street there there is a strip that's got like three or four dollar stores in a row um, and if you've been to an American city that's got three or four dollar stores in a row, you know exactly the kind of city you're in. That's that's what Sheffield is, you know, and it's but it's also a culturally vibrant, wonderful hub of, of working class culture, immigrant culture. Like there's so much to love. I really do love Sheffield. 
It's a wonderful little city. Yeah, so it's known for it was known for its uh, steel industry. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was massively deindustrialized during the eighties. Yep. Uh, there's a scene where one of the people in a crowd talk about the fact that they don't have any industry anymore. Uh, and what that meant, of course, is a huge spike in poverty, uh, a huge move towards anti-union legislation, mm-hmm. uh, low-wage, low-security jobs, uh, and, you know, a kind of predatory uh, a rental and extractive economies moving in to make money off poor working-class people who didn't have anywhere else to go. But as Ash points out, it's also an incredibly culturally vibrant city, uh, really good music scene, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, Sheffield's great. Sheffield's a great place. One of my favorite restaurants in all the UK is in Sheffield. So again, a nod to the wonderful food culture of England. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's this. It's it's a place that is very easily. Uh, again, we have these kind of interesting class antagonisms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, you know stereotypically uh, leftist in a sort of like laborite kind of way, uh, but this doesn't necessarily. Uh, move into any kind of like genuine class consciousness so I don't know I think the choice of Sheffield is interesting and I think it reflects uh, the writer and director's interest in trying to present what is life like in the UK if you do not subsume all of it to this kind of London-centric identity I and that's exactly what I was going to say too like by placing it in Sheffield like th- this movie is immediately relatable and readable to myself as an American four decades later, because I e- even without the fact that I've spent a lot of time in literal Sheffield, a lot of the cultural markers of this movie are very readable to me. You know, like they they ring lower middle class like like that is that is the the taste in the air when watching a, a lot of this film. And like if you would have said it in London or even like downtown Manchester, Liverpool, Edinburgh, like it would have lost a lot of that context. And I think it would have also lost a lot of that ability to be generalized. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's it serves as a good place for like this idea that politics happens elsewhere, right? Oh, because 100%. If you, mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're from, if you're from places which are, yeah, again, a lot of places in uh, the north of England, especially in the 80s, you often felt like decisions were being made for you. And like mm-hmm. things would things could happen to you that seemed to just fall out of the sky. You know, you might lose your house, you might lose your job, you might, you know, suddenly be sick and not be able to uh, go to the hospital. Like all of those things could just kind of happen. And it's very easy to think of power as po- and political power as being exercised by you know just a voice on the tv that doesn't really yeah. have a great deal to do doesn't really have a great deal to do to do with you anymore oh that that is that might be my favorite point that's been made in this episode to, to, to this moment in the recording i loved that um do you do you want to do you want to start start bringing things home with a quick discussion on post-disaster language yeah this is a really interesting thing that that threads does um, which is like, what happens, what's the generational legacy of this? And the generational legacy is a kind of, co- what, what's the final thing that nuclear war descri- de- destroys is it destroys language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the way that the, f- the film puts it uh, is that, you know, because of exposure to radiation, 
subsequent generations uh, develop in such a way that they don't have the same language capabilities. Yes. And they have mm-hmm. like a kind of half uh, language, a sort of like almost English. And it's like, this is what I mean when I when I kind of say that the, the nuclear war is almost unthinkable. It literally, we literally don't have the language to think it or think yeah. its aftermath, particularly because uh, you know it destroys it destroys uh, so much that you're left with literal rubble from which to try and rebuild something, not just physically but like cognitively too. Mm-hmm. What what do you think about that? I, I think this is one of the most striking moments of the movie too because. So, so at the end of the movie, we, we see things decades after the atomic strike and society isn't even just starting to come back together. People are just starting to figure out how to get like improvised machinery to work again. So, so we see an image of a plow that's like loosely rigged together with steam technology and, and the thing looks dangerous as all hell and half functional. And, and that's because like, you know like how how many people do we know that like could build a car with with no with no functioning machinery is that even possible let alone the infrastructure to sustain one or a train or an airplane or a computer you know like like this level of devastation puts a rift in history right like it creates a ravine that technology can't cross i think that's a great way of putting it i think that's a great way of putting it yeah and I think to, to round out our episode, the only, the only other thing that I wanted to touch on and something I, I think left out of this movie and I think left out of almost all disaster cinema <clears throat> is mutual aid. And this is something we've talked about a lot when we talk about these disaster movies. And that's like, you know, like you, you look anywhere, whether it's the United States or the United Kingdom, when when a big natural disaster is happening. Um, and even unnatural disasters, right? Like when a community is brought to its knees by by something happening that's this devastating, you know, people don't start gnawing on each other like rats. We we have the ability to band together and to do mutual aid to to start sustaining ourselves, to start reorganizing. And I, but I think that that requires that that's never spontaneous, right? Like that that requires a priming. And a in a, pre, a level of preparation, right? Like those those mutual aid efforts aren't just people like waking up one day and going like I can distribute bread. It's it's people who've been working for years to create a system and a network and the material conditions where you can distribute bread. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's like that depends upon a kind of like an awareness of your agential capacity. Right, that you don't need to wait for permission or you don't need to wait for the approval of a kind of institutional organization or a state organization. That's something that you can do for yourself and for others. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think, I mean, like, if there is a grand lesson to take home from this movie, it's that we need to prevent the conditions of this movie from happening. <laughs> like, what, what, if, what if the TUC wasn't just like a rickety picket of like 20. 20 tired overworked people on a street corner what if they actually had political power in in the terms of the the conference the, the terms of the conversation were that much different it's it's grim how much further we have to go but it is nevertheless hopeful that we still have the ability to get there oh what a line Boom. that's that's 
Boom. That's the line we have to finish on. <clears throat> that's that's the end of the episode, folks. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, and and hopefully uh, there's another episode next week and we don't wake up and we're trying to beat open a can of food with a rock. <laughs> Welcome to life in 21st century Britain. <laughs> Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.